Paul said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Let the mind that was in Christ be in you. He also said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We talked about uh, how important it is for us to uh, renew the mind after we have come to Christ. After Jesus has planted something in us that was not there before. That's one thing. That's the miracle. Then there is the process after that of renewing the mind. So it is consistent with the mind of the one that was placed in us. That can take a long time, but it can also be done eventually. Uh, Paul Brand was a surgeon in the country of India for a long time, and one of, the, uh, one of the great works that he did was restorative surgery for people who suffered from leprosy. Leprosy, as you know, is not one disease. It's many and many different layers. The worst form of leprosy takes away not only the skin, but the muscle, the tendons, the nerves that are under that skin. They literally die. So they would do reconstructive surgery, he said. In some cases, when a patient had lost an eyebrow due to leprosy, they would actually go to the back of his scalp and take a piece of, of hair and tunnel it over and down to be an eyebrow. So he could have a new eyebrow from a piece of hair that came from the back of his head. But all of the connections, I mean the nerves and the blood supply and all of that, was still connected to where it was before. So he said whenever a fly would crawl across the, the uh, eyebrow of the new patient, he'd slap the top of his head. <laughs> the, the, they would um, take some patients that had lost the muscle and the tendons in their thumb, and they would take the nerves and the muscle from the ring finger and transplant it over to the thumb. But then when he would say, move your thumb, they, it, it, nothing would happen. When he would say, move your ring finger, then he would start moving the thumb. So he said, the process of learning new ways to think and act after the surgery was as important as the surgery itself. Some cases, he said, when the patient was over 40, which was most of the 8.30 service today. <laughs> he said the, that it never, it never happened. Of course, we know now that that change can occur well into our 80s. But it's still this slow, arduous process after the surgery, after God has done what only God can do, we have to learn to think and act in ways that are consistent with the way that God has wired us. This can take a long time. Uh, this is not something that you do. And it's not something God does. It's something the two of you do together. I say that because... The tendency is for us to rely too much on God, and then after it seems like God has 
failed to do what he's supposed to do, then we kind of go all the way to the other side and do the whole thing as if it was supposed to depend upon us. But the process of renewing the mind is that process of restoring, as I was trying to say last week, the desires and the instincts and the dispositions so that they are like the original condition. That is, they are back into the image of God. I can't say this enough, and I got to say it first. The process of renewing the mind is not simply a way to become better adjusted and happier individuals. This is a process of going back to the image of the one who created us. So we become like him, not just better versions of ourselves. Or I'll say it. That's right, Steve. That's exactly right. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24 says, And put on the new person, wait for it, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, that you would be renewed, here it is, in the image of our creator. Romans 8, verse 29. Those whom God foreknew, he did predestined, wait for it, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many. Not a better version of me, but the version of him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49. Even as we bear the image of the man from earth, even so shall we bear the image of the man from heaven. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. What we shall be has not yet appeared, but we know this. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we are being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory, which comes, not from you, from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There, I'm done. I just give you six different places in the New Testament where the message is clear that what God is doing in the restoration process is renewing us to something that he had built to begin with. I'm uh, reading one of the books I'm reading. It's called Mindsight. Daniel Siegel. It's called The New Science of Transformation. <laughs> and in the beginning, he talks about what the outcome for this new science is. And he said, when it has done its work, it will make us more emotionally balanced so that we can deal with crises both large and small. It will introduce us to ourselves so we can have better relationships with others and with ourselves. It will give us a deeper understanding of who we are. And while all those are very noble outcomes, they lack a connection to something larger than ourselves. So if this seems like obvious to you, leave Christian counseling for 30 minutes and you'll see how radical of a statement that is. Because most of the information out there right now is about helping us to discover ourselves. 
and then to improve ourselves so that we can express ourselves with authenticity. Authenticity is not being a better version of ourselves. It is being a better version of the one we were made to be. Not some self-actualized individual, but the image of the one who created us. So with that goal in mind, it changes the process and the way that we think about transformation. It now has a target. It has a telos. It has a goal that is outside of ourselves, that we are in the process of becoming. So, so this week, I've been struggling with, so what is the current state of my mind? And, and it's hard for me, to, uh, for me to like discern my mind because these seem to me to be ordinary thoughts. It's the same with you. You have a thought and you're like, well, doesn't everybody think this way? Well, sure, sane people, but insane people probably not. So you can't, it's like a fish defining water. He doesn't know what it is because this is the only mind that I've ever had. So I've been wrestling with a few other questions that help me get maybe a more objective view of what's in my mind. Can I give them to you? I'll just list them and then you can wrestle with them too if you want. One is uh, who or what? Is discipling you. You didn't necessarily ask them. You may not even know them. And the more educated you are, and the more self dependent you are, stubborn's the other word, the more likely you are to say, nobody, nobody is discipling me. These are my thoughts. <laughs> See, that's where you're wrong. Somebody has a line into your brain. Somebody is teaching you what is most important and how you should think about it. So your agenda, your opinions, your views, your comments, your assumptions have been steadily fed into you over the years. And they've layered for so long and they've hardened that you've started to reproduce these ideas yourself. And now that you are, you think them's my ideas. <laughs> Except that Long before you started thinking them thoughts, somebody or people were streaming things into your mind. So who is it or what is it? Name them. Is it Facebook? Is it social media? In the 830 service, it's Fox News. <laughs> Holy cow. 
They're like, we report, you decide. Really? Except that there's a lot more happening than what you report. So apparently you decide what to report so that I'll report what you decide. But again, it's the stream. You, are you tracking? For some of you, it's movies or characters. For some of you, it's politicians. For some of you, it's a stream of activists. For some of you, it's a cadre of professors or teachers or podcasts or columnists. It's people that you keep going back to again and again because, well, they get it. <laughs> so who are they? Question number two, what are they teaching you? What are you learning? What assumptions are so self-evident that if any doesn't buy that, they don't get it? Three, are they right? And how would you know? They seem right because you've bought into it. But really, how would you know? Just the fact that you can anchor your convictions and your ideas into something Jesus said doesn't mean it's right. It just means you found a verse and four. What is it doing to you? What kind of person are you becoming? What effect is it having on you? When a virus approaches a healthy cell, it asks the cell two questions. The first one is, will you let me in? And if you don't, then the battle is on. But if the healthy cell lets the virus in, then the second question it asks is, will you reproduce me? And when the healthy cell starts to manufacture the very virus that overcomes it, the transformation is in process. Now, ideas are like viruses. They approach us and ask, will you let me in? Even the good ideas. And will you reproduce me? And the more we reproduce those ideas, the more sure we become that they are our ideas. We can no longer tell the difference. And the more powerful they become in transforming us. So now it is all about finding the right streams and the right teachers and mentors who can teach us things that help us to become not just people with deep convictions or opinions, but good people, good souls. Are you still with me? How does that happen? Um, it, I believe the process, I don't think there's a formula. I believe the process begins when God 
does a miracle in the heart of a person. I, for want of a better word, I'm just calling it a divine spark. I think there is a moment when God gets inside of a person's heart and mind and starts to communicate truth to that person. Until he does this, all of the work will be self-manufactured and it will be hard and I won't get traction. But there's a moment when God says something to the deepest regions of my heart and I know that it's true. I can't tell how it's going to be for you. I can only tell you what it's like for me. There are moments or seasons in my life where I suddenly become more self-aware than I've ever been before. I start to realize that I am not who I think I am. And I'm not really who you think I am. I am somewhere between who I project myself to be and who you actually think I am. Somewhere in between those two, a better picture of myself becomes real. And then there's this nagging discontent. There's something inside of me that says, you can't be happy with this. This is not who you want to be. Don't you want more? And it doesn't just come and go. It's not a worship service. It's not a single verse. It isn't a moment. It's a growing dissonance that I have as I see the deepest parts of my being. And then there is this moment in the midst of that frustration and despair where I almost sense God is going to do something new. God is going to do a miracle in the midst of all my frustration he will break in from the outside. He will get hold of me somewhere. I don't know where. And he will change me. When I manufacture these moments myself, it's just guilt. It's just somebody else's voice telling me what I should do, or it's me living around a bunch of legalistic people saying, man, why aren't I more like that? But you see, God never, 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 never convicts me without giving me hope that I could be something more. My guilt always just leaves me there and says, you see what you do? You ought to feel bad about that. And what? You can't just leave me here. But when God is speaking, he will say specifically, do you see what happened? Do you see what you said? Do you know who you are and what I made you to be? I can make you this. But Steve, you have to stay in the game. Because God loves sports. Three teenagers get on a subway in New York City, talking amongst themselves. Across from them sits an old, deformed Russian woman. She is huddled over. Her face is weathered, and as I said, deformed, and she is mumbling things to herself in Russian. Teenagers start doing what they often do. They start talking about the woman in English. They start making derisive comments. They start laughing pretty blatant about this. 30 seconds later, the train rolls to a stop. The old Russian woman grabs the bar and pulls herself up and gets ready to go out the door. But before she leaves, she turns and says to the three American teenagers, 
in perfect English. I was not always this ugly. And she is gone. Stop. In that moment, in that second, you can either mock, you can curse, and you can get on with your scheduled activities for the day. Or you can pause for a second and look at your deep interior and say, Dear God, what is my problem? When the desert fathers said, and they did, that the soul was aborted a thousand times a day, this is what they were talking about. A thousand times a day, what is deep inside of us will bubble to the surface, but we hardly have time to look at it. But if we do, if we leave margins in our lives, and not allow people and schedules and outcomes and data to crowd our lives, we will find that God will meet us in those moments and there will be a divine spark. But you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must find margins or you can't hear. So how does this happen? I, I think there are four different powers. I've just said to you that I'm not going to give you a formula and I'm not. I don't think there is a formula. I can only tell you what has happened to me. But it will not happen to you in the same way. But from what I know... There are patterns in people's lives where their mind is being transformed more efficiently, more quickly. It's happening better for them than in other minds. So I'm not looking for a formula. I'm just looking for what are the components? What's the pattern wherein this occurs? And what I'm finding is all four of these things must be happening together. I can't just have one or two of these and then the other two I'll get to later because like gears that interlock, if one or two of these is stuck, then it neutralizes what the other ones are trying to do. So what are those components? The first one is the Holy Spirit. I'm looking at the time. I know, relax. We have communion too. <laughs> We're going to do drive-by communion today. It, the first one is the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit is what desires. Galatians chapter 5 says, the Spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful. Apparently, he has desires that are all his own. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that we do not have the sinful nature. We have the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of Christ lives in you, but if the Spirit of Christ does not live in you, then you are none of his. Keep reading. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead shall quicken your physical bodies... Mm, let me translate that. This power that is from God that takes a dead man and it makes his heart start beating again 
infusing life into a corpse, that spirit is alive and he is active in you right now. The mistake you must not make is to believe that you have the spirit and he is lying around mostly dormant in your life. That is a myth. If you have the spirit, then he has a mind of his own. He does not need for you to give him permission to do anything. He'll just start working. He isn't your boy. He's not your boy. He has a mind of his own and he has an agenda of his own. And he is in this very second that I am talking, already helping you to interpret what I'm saying. He's helping you to draw connections to regions of your life that you didn't maybe know before. So practical. I started praying to the Holy Spirit. I know theologians like to argue about that's, uh, that's another problem. That I started praying to the Holy Spirit, thanking him for being active in my life. And you know what I discovered? Most of the stuff in my life that I was bad at, he was sent in order to fix. That was a striking thought. I was living with stuff far too long, man. So I just started opening my heart to him, my spirit to him in a lengthened season of prayer, thanking him for the way in which he is active in my life. And it is almost impossible to live the rest of that day oblivious to what you just did. Second, that's the power, by the way. Second is the promise. The promise is a word from God. When I grew up, I grew up memorizing the scripture, an old Gideon's Bible that I got for free. And I would underline verses that meant something to me, which was every verse. And then I couldn't tell the difference from the ones that meant something and the ones that didn't. And when all the verses mean something, then almost none of them mean something. And so I started memorizing scripture. No, large portions of scripture in the second and third grade. I knew at least as much scripture as most of the adults in my church. But I discovered one day that while I was reading the scripture, that God was actually using the scripture as a portal to pour through the words of scripture and say something into my spirit. Let me say that differently. I think sometimes we can get so focused on the actual word of scripture that the words become an obstacle to the thing that God is trying to do. We can become so meticulous in our research and in our scholarship that we forget there is a living being on the other side of these words. And it's not simply what Jesus said. It is what he was trying to say. It's the spirit of Jesus, the heart of Jesus. And I discovered that he was all this time trying to do something in me and trying to give me something that I couldn't take because I was consumed with all of the particulars, all of the verses all of the abstain froms, all of the obey, share, tithe, 
forgive. I mean, all those things that I was supposed to do, but I had never heard a promise. Not one promise. And then one day, standing beside a river, praying as I did for years, memorizing the scripture from Ezekiel, where he says, I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will write my laws on your hearts. Let me translate that for you. Steve, I will give you a natural desire for things you didn't even like before. And when he said that to me, nothing changed in the moment. And yet, everything had changed. Because I knew he was good for it. And suddenly, all of the abstains and the shares and the ties and the forgives and all, all of these particulars were following the promise. But one the other way around. I like what Tim Stafford says. He said, if God showed up in your doorway tonight while you slept, woke you up and said, you will be the next Michael Jordan. What would you do? Would you roll over and sleep until 10? Would you go to the bakery and order four more donuts? Eat any way you want? And then at noon, go off to band practice the way that you always did? Or would you start saying, I better find a basketball and get acquainted with the game? <laughs> you see, there is all the difference in the world between someone telling you this is who you're going to be and you trying to be it yourself. It'll drive you nuts. I know this. Practical. Lay before you, church, the word of God. Read it. Soak in it. Say, I'm not getting anything from it. No, I said read it and soak in it. I'm not going to give you magical questions that will unlock. No, what? the more familiar you become with the word of God. Give God something to strike. Give him something to strike when he decides to do it. And then you will hear a promise. It will be your own, not the one I heard. It will be your own. And you will hear a voice on the other side of those words. And it will brand a hope inside of you that is new. Plan. Um, thought occurred to me one day that most of us who have the Spirit don't have a plan. We, uh, Paul said, put off the old person. Unlearn. Then be made new in the spirit of your minds. Then put on the new person. Learn. So much of our spiritual formation then is about unlearning things that we've learned over the years and learning other things in place of them. I, I, and I have to go fast now, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, people, who are you going to do this with? Who are you going to do this with? This transformation of the mind is not a solitary sport. 
This is something that God's the biggest change in my uh, in my life lately is watching the power that the body of Christ has. I mean, you 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 know, you're tempted to think that church is a gathering um, where people that God has changed individually out there somewhere all gather to have value added to our lives. But this is not what the church is. The church is not a gathering of individuals who each had a miracle. The church is the miracle. The body of Christ is the miracle. It's not a museum. It's a washing machine where people get into the same thing at the same time and they start rubbing off on one another and the word of God is added. The life of Jesus is added to this. The cross of... And as people's lives bump into one another, we knock the sins off of one another. That's not done out there. It's done in here when we gather. And in a moment when we stand in line to receive the sacrament communion, you understand we don't have a moment better than this moment. And we don't have grace that is any more direct than this grace. So this isn't just a celebration of something that God has done in your life. This is also the doing. <laughs> this is the very doing of it. I was at a camp about a month ago, and I was preaching that night on the church. And um, when I was done, there was a line to, to talk about the sermon. It's like an oral defense or something. And this, well, this guy, he comes walking by and he says, uh, nice, uh, nice speech. That tells you something, doesn't it? Um, he, he said, but I got, I got to take exception to what you said. I said, well, it might need improving. What, what did you hear? He said, uh, I thought I heard you say that we are to confess our sins one to another. I said, no, no, I didn't say that. James said that. <laughs> Peter said that. Uh, he said, no, I think I have to take exception to that. He said, uh, for first of all, you see, he said, my sins are private matters. They are not ways in which I hurt other people. They're private problems. And therefore, he said, I don't think I need really to confess them to another person. I just need to confess them to God. Now, by this time, the rest of the line's leaning in thinking, oh, man, here goes a debate. <laughs> I just said, you know, uh, well, you know, you might be right, but um, offhand, I can't think of a sin that you could ever commit that is purely a private matter. Not even that one. I can't think of a sin where the effect of that sin, though done in private, does not affect people who are not with you at the time. And second, it's never your sins that get you anyway, is it? It's your secrets. He said, well, that was a nice speech. Thank you. <laughs> I think I convinced him. This morning, as you come to the table, 
some of you will need to confess. You'll confess to God. But you've done that. You may need to find accountability in this very body that you're part of. So church isn't just something you come to. Take what you need and then go work on your spiritual life. Maybe the church becomes the way. And maybe transparency is part of that process.